You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. We're coming up on the end of the year, so I thought it'd be a good time to take stock of how it went. Not how it went generally, that would be a miserable exercise, but how it went for this show. And I'll be honest with you, this is sort of an excuse for me to toot my own horn, because I don't believe that there's anyone else in podcast land that does what I do, or if there is, I don't know about them. What I mean is, by my rough calculations, in this calendar year, I have so far released 23 episodes that together total about 25 hours of listening. That's 1,500 minutes researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced almost entirely by myself. And this year, that includes a lot of work that I'm really proud of. I got to spend more than three hours talking about the history of forensics and why we should be more circumspect of quote-unquote scientific evidence in courtrooms, which I hope made some tiny drop of difference in how someone sees the justice system. I spent more than two hours on how the pursuit of dating the Earth led one researcher to discover the biggest public health crisis in human history. There was that blasted Eddystone lighthouse, a whole host of death rays, the people who believed in intelligent life on the sun, the people who believe that all of history is counterfeited, a New York court case to determine whether whales are fish, and so much more. And that's all thanks to you for listening. A couple of months ago, I started finally working on the story of humanity's quest to work out longitude. I initially hoped to tell it in one episode, but it quickly became clear that I couldn't, that I'd need two parts, and then three. The prospect worried me. What if people didn't want to listen to more than three hours of me talking about clocks and astronomy and compasses? But you came with me on that journey. In fact, Long Story Short has already become one of the most listened-to things I've ever made. And I am so lucky for that. So lucky that I've been able to find a group of people who are excited to accompany me down such a, a dorky rabbit hole. Truly, thank you for listening. And for telling your friends or family members or co-workers or whomever you think might like to join the ranks of Constantines. I've been making this show for about four years now, and it has grown tremendously over that time. It's grown, in fact, just enough that if I make 26 or 27 hours of it a year, it can put a roof over my head. But that's still quite small in absolute terms. If you're a regular listener to this show, I want you to know that you're part of a still very intimate and special family. 
when you tell someone to listen to the daily, that's great, but that's a drop in the Olympic-sized swimming pool to the New York Times. When you introduce someone to this show, you're really making a difference. And for everyone who chooses to support this show financially, you're making an even bigger one. My patrons are really the ones who end up making it possible for me to produce that 1,500 minutes of audio a year. And with their support, I've also made an additional three and a half hours of bonus content this year, too, available to everyone who chips in to make this show available to everyone else. Last year, at just about this time, I was working on an episode entitled Lick the Earth, which I'm still really happy with, not least of which because H.B. Ward is the best damn George Wellington streeter a person could hope to have, but I digress. At about this moment a year ago, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to get Lick the Earth out on time, and so I released a few of the old Secret Feed bonus episodes instead, and it did a really good job of showing people just what they'd be getting for their money if they decided to join up. So, this week I'm doing that again. I've got two more full episodes in the pike before 2021 finally fucking dies, but this week I'm going to be playing you a few of the bonus episodes available to those who contribute at patreon.com slash the constant. If you've got the money and the inclination, maybe you could join them. Or if you know someone who might like to support this show as a gift and get access to the feed. But whether you can or can't or do or don't, I want to thank you at least one more time for what you do to make the constant constant just by tuning in and trusting me. It's a real honor. This week's episode, It's a Secret to Everyone 2. Right after this. If you're like me, keeping up with the news has become a real pain. All the best news sites are locked behind paywalls, and the free stuff is just clickbait and fake news that no one should waste time on. Imagine an app where you can get unlocked access to the reliable news sites. An app that filters out fake news and clickbait, but still shows you every story from multiple perspectives to counter bias. Where good news, as in positive stories, is highlighted so you don't become despondent and where journalists dig through news from around the world to find stories you wouldn't normally see. That's what an innovative Australian startup called Inkle, I-N-K-L, has come up with. Inkle.com has signed partnerships with 100 news sources like The Economist, The Atlantic, and Bloomberg, and created a unique system combining journalists and algorithms to create a best-of news feed. The service unlocks more than $12,000 of premium news for 100 bucks a year. If you go now to inkle.com slash the constant, they'll give you an additional 25% discount. So you can get a whole year's worth of headache-free news for just $75. That's I-N-K-L dot com slash constant. The Constant Secret Feed takes a lot of different forms. Sometimes it contains stories related to recent episodes. Other times I make standalone stories that are either too small for the main show or which don't quite fit the mission of getting things wrong. Whenever I'm asked to do a live performance or to contribute something for another show, I try to make that available for the patrons too. The first two Secret Feed stories I'm featuring today will be of that variety. The first is a piece I made for The Paper Machete, a live topical variety show here at Chicago at which I frequently perform. 
Longtime listeners will remember a couple of early episodes taken from the machete, and patrons will remember a whole bunch more of those. During the first year of the pandemic, the paper machete moved temporarily to the digital world. The metaverse, if you will, please don't. And I gave them this little heist story. When the twins were little, a circus passed through their village. There in Corthezone, in the south of France, in the early 1800s, Louis and Francois were amazed by a magician. Less for his card tricks and more for his swindles, the three-card Monty bets and the pickpocketing. They left home immediately, traveling with the circus, assisting the magician, learning cons and games of chance, and dreaming of fame and fortune. In his later years, Francois would become known first as the Magician of Hamburg, and then the Magician of Monte Carlo, which was especially fitting, as Francois founded Monte Carlo, the most famous and opulent casino in the world, along with his companion, Prince Charles III of Monaco. If you just looked at the first part of Louis and Francois' lives, where they were runaway carnies, and the last part, where they were near royalty, you'd have to assume there was some sort of magic trick in the middle. And you wouldn't be entirely wrong. Hi, I'm Mark Chrysler. I make a podcast called The Constant, where I talk about humanity's fuck-ups and idiocy. And I sometimes yell about politics at the paper machete. But I don't feel like talking about people failing today, and I don't feel like yelling at the president. No, that's not true. I do. I very much do. But I don't want to do it. You know what I really feel like? A good heist story. Doesn't that sound nice? So yeah, here's one of those. I'm calling it Ocean's 1834. Smash cut to Bordeaux, 1834. Francois and Louis Blanc have left the circus and are working for an investment company, speculating on state rents in the southwest of France. The frustrating thing about doing that from Bordeaux is that the whole business was dependent on the Paris stock market. But news from Paris took four or five days to get down south. So, speculators like the Blanc brothers were always responding to the past, like astronomers betting on dead starlight. Of course, this also represented an opportunity. If you could figure out a way to get indications from the exchange ahead of the Paris newspapers, you'd basically be able to fix the whole market. There were already riders hired to sprint to Bordeaux in three days. And rumor had it that the Rothschilds were sending carrier pigeons to make it in less. The Blancs tried deploying messenger birds of their own, but couldn't get the edge they were looking for. They needed something faster. Except, it was 1834. What was faster than a bird? Smash cut to 1792. It's the height of the French Revolution, and the Legislative Assembly is surrounded by enemies on all sides. Britain was threatening from the north and held the Mediterranean coastal port of Toulon. Marseille and Lyon were in open revolt, and all of the other neighbors, from the Netherlands to Austria to Spain, were either at war with France or close to it. The only thing keeping the National Convention from falling to its many, many foes was their inability to communicate with one another. Contrapositively, the thing France had on its side was its ability to communicate across the countryside, which meant the government could use a better, faster way to do that. In came a different set of brothers, the Chapes. 
Claude Chappé didn't have a job, and neither did three of his four brothers, which gave them plenty of time to try to work up a quick way of transmitting messages. The only Chappé who was employed was Ignis, who was part of the Legislative Assembly, meaning that he could push the government into supporting his siblings. Claude tried a number of different methods, each one based on the idea of a relay, a series of stations crisscrossing the countryside. There'd been things like that before. Uh, torches that could be lit in sequence to sound an alarm, or smoke signals, or even bell towers. But all those designs were limited in how much they could say, how quick they could say it, and how hard it was to listen. After ruling each one out, Claude began experimenting with electrical signals, but the technology wasn't there yet. In order to send a jolt of electricity hundreds of miles, you needed a lot of electricity. And you had to have something both very conductive and sufficiently insulated to send it through. None of that existed in 1834. So Claude settled on what he called the tachygraph, roughly meaning fast writer. The tachygraph was a series of tall towers positioned just near the edge of one another's sight lines with big movable poles on their roofs. At the tip of each pole was a movable crossbar, like a big crucifix that could wobble back and forth. And at either end of the crossbar were two more jointed rods that could also be swung around at all angles. Altogether, you could arrange the whole setup in any one of 196 ways, plenty enough to design a communications code around. The Chapes experimented with the tachygraph for a few years. One brother could sit in one of the towers and put up a signal, while another brother could be at another tower a few miles away with a telescope. He could look out, see the shape his brother was making, and move the arms of his tachygraph to the same position. Then, the next brother in the next tower could do the same. The tachygraph worked like gangbusters, aside from the several occasions when paranoid angry mobs burned down the towers. Still, Ignis was able to sell the assembly on Claude's invention, minus the name. They didn't like tachygraph. Instead, they appointed Claude Chappé the chief engineer of the telegraph. The first leg of Chappé's telegraph went from Paris to Lillet, more than 140 miles, in nine minutes. In 1794, the Paris to Lillet stations transmitted news of a French victory against Austria less than an hour after the battle ended. More lines were built, from Paris to Strasbourg, Paris to Calais, to Brest in the west, down to Marseille in the south. By 1830, there were optical telegraph lines running every which way across the country. Napoleon even had a mobile horse-drawn system with him on the warpath. Every day, the government could send messages to and from Paris and all parts of the nation, including Bordeaux, where the Blanc brothers were laying in wait. The scheme required two things. They needed to find a way to splice the day's stock market results into the telegraph message, but they also needed to do it in a way that only they could notice, let alone read. The telegraph operators weren't especially well-paid, and they had to sit at their towers looking out for messages every day from sunup to sundown. So it would be easy enough to bribe somebody into adding a little bit of extra info. And the Blanc brothers knew that most of the operators had no idea what they were transmitting. The shapes were all encoded, and only certain telegraph directors had the key. One of those directors was Pierre Renault, who headed the telegraph office at Lyon. For a price, he explained the system to Louis and Francois. It turned out that in the regular sending of messages, there were a lot of mistakes, like big, tower-sized typos. So, the telegraph office had a signal that essentially amounted to a backspace. 
if you accidentally sent the wrong letter, you just had to send the nix signal after, so that the person decoding the message at the end knew to disregard it. At the end. That was the opportunity. There was a station outside of Paris at Tours where corrections were made, and then another at Bordeaux. But all the way between the two, for more than 200 miles, the telegraph stations would pass on everything, errors and all, and the backspaces would be removed before anybody translated the message. The Blancs had their way. They hired an agent to hang around Paris watching the stock market. If the interest rate changed significantly, he would then send a package to the station at Tours. If rates were up, there'd be a pair of gloves in the box. If rates went down, socks. The operator at Tours took a small bribe then to introduce a single erroneous character into the daily message, followed by the backspace. That code then got transmitted all the way to Bordeaux, where it was removed, but not before it was spotted by Pierre Renault, who the brothers rented a room for within eyeball distance of the telegraph tower. Renault would decipher the message, pluck out the code, and deliver word of the Paris markets to Louis and Francois, not four days after closing, or three, or even one, but within the hour. For two years, the Blanc brothers positively owned the Bordeaux market. They went from down-and-out carnies to outrageously successful stock speculators. Then, things took a turn. In 1836, the inside man at the Tours Telegraph died. On his deathbed, he told a cousin about the scheme and asked for him to take up the job when he passed. The cousin then approached the director of the station, asking for his belated relative's job. But the director didn't give it to him, and the cousin, angered by the lost opportunity, blabbed to the cops. The Blanc twins were arrested and held in jail for seven months. At trial, the state argued that they had engaged in a criminal conspiracy to misappropriate government communication systems in furtherance of gaining an uncompetitive advantage in the market. The Blanc's defense didn't deny any of that. Yes, they'd hired someone to watch the market. Yes, they'd bribed some operators to introduce hidden codes in the telegraph. Yes, they'd employed Renault to translate the messages. And yes, they'd used those messages to make a fortune. They could freely cop to every last thing, the brothers figured. Because after all, there was no law against any of it. Well, that can't be right, said the prosecutors. But indeed it was. There were no wire fraud laws or anything like that anywhere in the world, because until 1834, nobody had ever committed such a crime. So, Francois and Louis were free to go and free to keep every last penny of their earnings. Laws were quickly passed to make sure nobody could profit from such a scheme going forward, but that was fine with the Blancs. They were well on their way to new schemes by then. In Hamburg, they created a new game called Roulette. The great thing about it, according to Francois, was the same thing that had been so great about the market in Bordeaux. Half the time, red one. The other half, black. But either way, every spin was white. Which is to say, whether rouge or negro, the winner is always Blanc. Next up, here's one of the earliest live performances that I made under the constant name. Little warning on this one, it is very sad. Otherwise, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Tell 
Testing, testing. You guys can make a little noise for me. Yeah, that's great. I think. Who knows? Can you? I can't actually. I don't have headphones on. How's that? That picks me up even a little bit. Fantastic. Let's pretend none of this has happened thus far. An unproductive percentage of my day-to-day -day brain space is filled up by a macabre list. The top ten things that will kill us all. I take this very seriously. <laughs> to wit, a casual apocalypse hobbyist might plop climate change into the number one slot. Fine. But the pro-level extinction warrior, like myself, global warming, serious as it is, barely cracks the top five. Which, if you think about it, and oh my god, do I think about it, is a pretty bleak sign. Climate change is a very severe threat. I'm sure I don't need to tell you that. Rising sea levels and coral bleaching and strengthening storm systems and what could be worse than all that, right? You might reasonably ask. And to which I would reply, strong AI leading to human obsolescence, multi-resistant bacterial strains, nuclear winter, and number one with a bullet, pandemic flu. I cannot stress this enough. <laughs> pandemic flu. But there is room for quibbling, space for re-evaluation. Obsessing over humanity's probable demise isn't an exact science, after all. And I will freely admit that up until very recently, I was totally overlooking a real dark horse contender. And not a new or a recently discovered one, either. It's a fighter that's already won some pretty big purses, having previously contributed to the fall of the Greek, Roman, and Punic empires. And it's a problem that one man, in particular, has dedicated his life to solving, with some unfortunately mixed results. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. The Constant is a podcast about exactly what it says it is, the various and sundry ways by which mankind has struggled to better understand and better the world and the many ways in which we've failed. This is also the Plagiarist Spring Salon, a semi-annual live show curated around a theme. I was invited by the inimitable Eileen Tull to perform at the latter. Yeah! And I had to produce some bonus content for my Patreon supporters for the former. So, what you are either watching or listening to right now encompasses my attempt to kill two birds with one stone. Tonight's theme and today's episode, what does it cost to change the world? And let's get ready for a pretty severe tone change in a couple of lines here. According to Instagram, Desertification is the unbecoming process of plopping scoops of ice cream onto savory food items, like fried chicken and New York pizza slices. This is a part of the internet I cannot advise you strongly enough to avoid. Yet, the actual scientific process of desertification is somehow even worse. The encroachment of new desert upon previously arable lands. This is the new entrant on my top ten list. Desertification magnifies the effects of climate change, as forest, scrub, and grasslands die off and are swallowed up by desert, that is less and less plant life to process the excess CO2 in our atmosphere. But that is barely an ancillary concern. Worse is the loss of farmland, the disruption of food supplies, the water shortages, the emigration of great swaths of vulnerable, largely impoverished people from their homelands. And desertification is getting worse. Look at the Gobi Desert along the border of China and Mongolia. Each year, the Gobi swallows up nearly 1,400 square miles of greenery. Beijing, second most populous city in the world, 18.5 billion 
Nope, that's not correct. Million people, rather. Look, we're going to edit that one out. And only you need know. So, okay, ready? I hadn't thought about taking advantage of this, but now we have secrets. Um, uh, Beijing, the second most populous city in the world with 18.5 million, with a Carl Sagan M, million people, is now less than 45 miles away from the edge. Or take the Sahel. You've seen the Sahel on any map of Africa you've ever studied. It's that band that cuts across the entirety of the continent, separating the Sahara Desert from the savannas to the south. Today, the Sahel rests more than 150 miles farther south than it was a century ago. And it was that spread that Alan Savory was put in charge of stemming when he became a game officer for northern Rhodesia, present-day Zambia, in 1955. Savory collected data about the degrading lands to the north and reached a conclusion that gelled very well with the established wisdom of the day. What was causing the lands to die off? People. Overgrazing, deforestation, and humanity's oldest tool, fire. And the solution was obvious, but not uncontroversial. The creation of new protected lands. And here we come to the first cost paid to change the world, because these new national parks required native peoples to be removed from their ancestral lands. That said, I would argue that this was a pretty clearly worthwhile price to pay. After all, these tribes would have lost their homes anyway if the Sahara was allowed to continue, continue its advance. Better to remunerate them for the loss of property in advance and by that, snuff out the threat. Except, as you've potentially guessed, said threat was deeply profoundly unsnuffed. By the early 1960s, the data suggested that not only the protected lands were still turning, but that the areas where people had been removed were succumbing to the desert even faster than those that had been left populated. How could that be? What could possibly explain it? Alan Savory experimented and studied, he interviewed and surveyed, and finally he came to an awful conclusion. What does it cost to change the world? And more critically still, what cost are you willing to pay to save it? For Alan Savory, this was not an academic question. So let's take a moment to consider the stakes as he did. If nothing was done to stem the tide of desertification, he was looking at 50 years of creeping drought and famine, tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands dead, and millions more rendered refugees a crisis squarely within the top 10 criteria. The information Savory collected said that he could do something about it. He could save all those people, all that land. If you were him, what cost would you be willing to pay? I ask because what Savory concluded left him with a terrible choice. His figures showed that it wasn't humans who were causing the desert to spread. It was something else that was destroying the trees and the grasses of the Sahel. Not just destroying, but trampling and consuming them. Something big, something huge, something numerous. No matter how many times and how many angles he looked from, the facts came up the same over and over again. What was responsible for the desertification in Northern Africa was elephants.
So I'm asking you, what would you do? What is the worst thing you'd be willing to do to change the world for the better? Most of us, mercifully, will never know. For most of us, that question will always be a thought experiment, a hypothetical matter of philosophy. But not Alan Savory. He knows precisely what he'd do, because he's done it. Alan Savory, provincial game officer for the Colonial Service of Northern Rhodesia, authorized the culling of elephants in the Northern and Luapula provinces. Lots of elephants. By 1970, the Park Service had slaughtered an estimated 40,000 African elephants. I know, it's terrible. But it's worse than that. And the decision no doubt weighed on Savory even before 1970, when the new data came in and showed it hadn't worked either. 40,000 elephants killed on a hunch that turned out to be wrong. Imagine the cost you'd be willing to pay to change the world, and now imagine you pay it and for your troubles receive nothing. Since the cullings of the 1960s, approximately 6 million people have lost their homelands to the spread of the Sahara. 260,000 Somalis died in the famine of 2010, 70,000 Sudanese in 1998, 300,000 Somalis in 1991, more than a million Ethiopians between 83 and 85. And while the colonial office of Northern Rhodesia massacred elephants, more than a million died of hunger and thirst along the Sahel. For the last 50 years, Savory has continued to work on the desertification problem. Today, he believes that his mistaken hypothesis of the 1960s was 180 degrees from the solution. Grazing animals, he now says, are the cure for the plight, not the cause. Now, he says, he's got it right, and together we can fix things. His idea is that grazers actually prevent desertification rather than encourage it by helping spread new seeds and remove dry brush. He advocates for increasing livestock stores around at-risk areas and managing herds to mimic the behavior of long-gone wild ones, like the elephants he once killed. Critics, and let's be clear, there are a lot of critics, say that he is still wrong, that fostering larger herds of fiend animals won't just increase desertification, but create a greater strain on scant water supplies and release even larger quantities of greenhouse gases into the air, worsening the effects of climate change. 50 years after failing to curtail the sleeper hit of world problems, Alan Savory is prepared to risk it all again. Take a moment, consider the stakes, and then ask yourself, are you? From Chicago, Illinois, birthplace of the McCormick Reaper that cut down the American prairie to extinction, this has been The Constant. More to come after these messages. The Constant is brought to you by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. 
skip trips to the grocery store, and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items to choose from every week, including vegetarian, calorie smart, and gourmet options, providing plenty of variety. Meals are ready in around 30 minutes or less. Plus, with their quick and easy meals, 20-minute recipes, or low-prep and easy cleanup options, you can get food to the table quicker so you can spend more holiday time with loved ones. I am about to receive my first HelloFresh box, and I'm like a kid on Christmas Eve. They've got recipes like balsamic and fig beef tenderloin and pecan-crusted salmon to make holiday meals feel special without the high cost of dining out or delivery. Or maybe I'll get some cozy comfort food like chicken sausage and sweet potato soup for a cold winter night. Don't forget dessert. Satisfy your sweet tooth with seasonal, limited-time goodies like ginger spiced cake truffles and cherry cheesecake swirl bars. Save, on average, over $65 a month when you order HelloFresh instead of grocery shopping. That's more money to spend on presents. Go to HelloFresh.com slash TheConstant14 and use code TheConstant14 for up to 14 free meals and three free gifts. Get up to 14 free meals and three free gifts by going to HelloFresh.com slash TheConstant14 and using code TheConstant14. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. And by University of California, Irvine, Division of Continuing Education. Today's economy is highly competitive and UCI-DCE can prepare you to stand out. According to data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, continuing education correlates to higher income. It opens doors to networking opportunities, better job opportunities, and career progression. Not to mention that learning more stuff makes you a happier person. UCI-DCE has been serving lifelong learners and skills development needs for local, regional, and global community for over 50 years. They offer over 80 career-focused programs in business, leadership, tech, education, engineering, health sciences, law, finance, and more. Some programs can even prepare individuals to sit for industry certifications or provide continuing education credits towards recertification. Courses are offered on a quarterly basis and non-formal application is required to enroll. Learn from instructors who are practicing professionals with extensive relevant industry experience and gain practical skills that can be applied immediately on the job. At UCI-DCE, enrollment is open to everyone. Go to ce.uci.edu slash learn now to learn now. Again, that's ce.uci.edu slash learn now or follow the link in the show notes. And by BetterHelp, what interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs to match you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. They have licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, trauma, relationships, grief, and much more. And since they're available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. 
In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash the constant. One of my proudest long-term accomplishments in this show has been my growth as a researcher over time. I'm still not as good at it as I wish I were, but I've definitely improved substantially over the years. One of the side effects of that improvement, though, is that I end up with more and more information that doesn't quite fit into the topic at hand. The side side effect of that is a lot more secret feed content that expands, enlightens, or otherwise plays off of the topics in the main feed. This next story is one of those. In the year 1550, or else 1546, or else 1549, depending on the source, a couple of Danish herring fishermen found something remarkable in their nets. So remarkable that they brought it immediately to King Christian III, who took one look at it and ordered them to bury it deep underground, to, quote, hinder indiscreet talk among the ignorant, whose minds are always perturbed by what is new. But you know the old saying, two men may keep a secret as long as one of them isn't Christian III, King of Denmark. At the same time that Christian was ordering the monster buried, he was also ordering illustrations of it made, with one of them to be sent to Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, and another to Queen Margaret of Navarre. Within a few years, everyone in Europe knew about the thing the fishermen had pulled up, and nearly everyone we talked about in the latest episode, Our Whale's Fish, ended up writing about and or drawing it. And for a few hundred years, it was an accepted fact that a race of clerical fish, I know those words don't normally go together, so let me say them again, a race of clerical, as in, in nomine patris et file et spiritus sancti, fish, as in bubble bubble swim swim, were thought to haunt the seas. This is the Constant Secret Feed. I'm Mark Chrysler. People won't stop going up and down the staircase above me. And today I'm here to tell you about the Sea Monk. And hey, since you're so darn good looking, I'll throw in the Sea Bishop for free. Of the two of them, the Sea Monk was by far the more popular and documented fish. So we'll spend most of our time on him. The descriptions and illustrations of the sea monk varied considerably, a fact that gave some thinkers regrettably brief pause, but in general he was described as a big fish, as long as four L's, which would be something like 15 feet, that had the appearance of, well, you know, a monk. What exactly was so monk-like about it is contested. Maybe it just appeared to have a scaly habit, but more often it was described as extremely suspiciously monk-like, with not just a habit, but limbs and a head, often black, that had a monk's tonsure, the haircut where the top is shaved off. According to Pierre Ballon, author of The Natural History of Strange Marine Fishes, and one of the first people to merge the biblical kingdoms with Aristotle's, it had the face of a monk and, quote, according to many who saw it, did not live more than three days, did not speak, nor emitted any sound, but great plaintive sighs. 
It's very likely that Balan's initial account was published so that he could get the scoop on his competition. We can guess that in three ways. First of all, his initial report on the Sea Monk published in Latin is very short, like he was rushing to get it out the door. It was shoehorned into his treatise De Aquatilibus in 1553. Two years later, he wrote a much longer and more fanciful version in French. Before that, his rival wrote up his own version of the Sea Monk. Said rival also featured in Our Whale's Fish, Guillaume Rondelet. Boulan beat him to the punch, but that did give Rondelet a certain advantage. Having read Boulan's description and seeing an accompanying illustration, Rondelet realized that the version of the Sea Monk he'd been told about and seen a picture of was very different from Boulan's source. Boulan said the fish had the face of a monk, whereas Rondelet's source said it had the habit of a monk. This discrepancy might have made Rondelet skeptical, maybe it did, but there were a couple of things that would have kept him from dismissing the sea monk outright. For one, his source for the sea monk story was above reproach. Queen Margaret of Navarre, you may remember Margaret from Map and Territory as the author who wrote about Marguerite de la Roque's time on the island of demons. In addition to being an author, she was also a patron of the arts and sciences, as well as, get this, the fucking queen! So if she said there was a sea monk, then a sea monk there was. Since Blonde had already written up his tiny summary, Rondelet was free to take his time, and that meant not only that he could write about the sea monk at greater length, a small but real victory over his rival, but also think and read longer about it. This also caused his skepticism to decrease, since he found in the recorded histories several references to creatures not unlike the sea monk. From these readings, he concluded that the sea monk was a variety of Homo Maris, or Merman. He also got a dig in on Balan, saying that some versions of the sea monk were probably embellished, quote, to make them seem more marvelous. The next year, Balan took Rondelet's description and ran with it, printing up an even more detailed family history of the Mermonk, putting it in the company of sirens, tritons, and sea nymphs. It looked very, very much like a monk, although it now had a black head, Balan now said. He didn't believe, however, that the sea monk was actually a monk. Instead, he wrote that its appearance was a joke being played by nature. Good one, nature! In this respect, Balan's thoughts on the sea monk were quite different from the story of the sea bishop. It's tempting to think that the sea bishop is just a variation on the tale of the sea monk. For starters, they're practically the same thing, fish that look like holy people. The sea bishop, naturally, had a big conical domed hat-like head instead of a monk's tonsure and a, quote, cloak-like membrane down its back. Some of the descriptions go a good deal further in making it a humanoid, including feet and tentacle-like fingers on its finnish hands, even a chin with accompanying beard. The story of the sea bishop's discovery also sounds a lot like that of the sea monk, with a few minor differences and one humongous one. Oh, that was a good tease. It's too bad I can't go right into it. First, I ought to say that even though it seems like the sea monk and the sea bishop were one and the same, there's some very good reason to doubt it, too. For one, Guillaume Rondelet wrote about both of them separately in his 1554 book, Livre de Piscibum Marinus. For another, the first report of the sea bishop goes back to 1531, which is well before King Christian shared his sea monk with Queen Margaret. That report was filed by Gisbertus Germanus, a Polish physician, and Rondelet found it much less believable. 
Rondelet told his readers that he was omitting some of the more fabulous details and that he was presenting the bare description of the sea bishop without any claims about whether it was true or not. So, these are the small differences. According to Germanus, the sea bishop was captured in 1531, not 1546, 49, or 50, depending. It was discovered in the Caspian Sea, not off the coast of Denmark, and it was brought to King Sigismund of Poland, not Christian III. The big difference, which Rondelet was unwilling to print, was that, according to Germanus, the fishermen had brought the sea bishop to Sigismund alive, and instead of ordering it buried in the ground, the king kept it in captivity. A group of bishops, or I should say land bishops, were brought to see their marine counterpart, which then communicated with them. The account isn't specific on what that meant, but apparently the bishops learned that the creature was intelligent, peaceful, and Christian. So they asked King Sigamund to set it free. When it was released back to the sea, it paused, turned, faced the men, and made the sign of the cross at them before leaving. Both the sea monk and the sea bishop continued to be written about for centuries, the former more than the latter, and were seen as the ultimate evidence for perfect symmetry, the belief that all terrestrial animals had a marine counterpart, which we talked about back in... I, when did we talk about perfect symmetry? Anyone remember? I think it might have come up a couple of times, probably in the sea monster episode, right? I don't know. By the 1700s, both of them were cut out of natural histories and encyclopedias, like the sea monsters talked about by Pliny and Aristotle and Sir John Mandeville, people no longer believed in the sea monks and bishops. But that, then, left a question. What had King Sigismund, King Christian, Queen Margaret, and the rest actually seen? There is no shortage of theories. The first one was offered by the Danish biologist Jepetis Steenstrup in 1855. He suggested that the sea monk might have been a giant squid, possibly lacerated, bruised, or broken in such a way that its pointy tip looked more hat-like and its tentacles more like limbs. Pretty good. Definitely plausible. The Belgian co-founder of the very legitimate field of cryptozoology, Bernard Huvelsman, thought it could have been a walrus, which I find to be an especially adorable answer, if not a better one. There's also the real possibility that they were hoaxes. In 1558, Conrad Gesner wrote Historia Animalium, which included not only the sea monk and sea bishop, but also warned that some people were making fake sea monsters out of rays, which they cut to look like angels or devils or dragons. This is the earliest account of what we now call Jenny Hanover, which I beg you to Google. Please. J-E-N-N-Y-H-A-N-I-V-E-R. Isn't that cute? In 2005, Charles Paxson and R. Holland suggested it could have also been a gray seal, a hooded seal, a monk seal, or even an angel shark, which is also known in Danish as a monk. But my favorite explanation, or partial explanation, is taken from a 16th century book by the surgeon Ambrose Parr, entitled Monsters and Marvels. Monsters and Marvels is pretty well exactly what it says it is, an encyclopedia of weirdnesses. Some of the monsters described in its pages are mythical beasts, but also elephants, rhinoceroses, and even conjoined twins. Oh, the past. For Parr, and a lot of the writers on monsters who followed him, there was always some sense to their appearance. 
Monsters were a perversion of God made from some sort of unholy coupling, like if a pregnant woman sat with her legs crossed too long. That's real. Monsters could be the result of demons or of magic corrupted by man's sin, and sometimes monsters were created by God himself, sent to mankind as a message. Like, imagine if you were in Denmark or Poland, right at the beginning of the Reformation, right after Luther nailed his theses to the door. Say, around 1531, or 1546, or 49, or 50, when the Catholic Church was under scrutiny from, or at war with, the people of Northern Europe. Maybe if you saw an ugly bit of squid, or skate, or ray at that moment, you might see it not just as an ugly, evil-looking monster, but an ugly, evil-looking Catholic monster. That's pretty good, right? That's it for now. Thank you, as always, for supporting the show. Talk to you soon. All right. So we've covered a live performance, a side story, a historical heist, and now, finally, we return to our roots. In the last episode, Something for Nothing, I gave a lot of context to newer listeners about my ongoing feud with Aristotle, but for anyone wondering about the specific catchphrase that adjoins that feud, this last secret feed story is for you. It's called Beware of Women. Here's a little extra credit question for all you honors students in the secret feed. What is up with clerical celibacy? As in, why can't Christian priests, in the Catholic and Orthodox traditions at least, marry? What's the idea behind that? Where did it come from? And how old is it? These are all white-hot questions in patristics, the study of the early church, and have been for longer than patristics has been a field. The Carthaginian author Tertullian swirled it around on the tongue and concluded that of the apostles, all but Peter had been abstinent and unmarried. The reasoning for this celibacy, Tertullian figures, is that the priests of Mithras did it, and the Christian church mostly copied what the Mithrics did. That's an interesting line of reasoning, but the more fascinating part is when Tertullian reasoned it. He's one of the very earliest of Christian apologists. We can't nail down the pub dates on his voluminous works precisely, but Prescription Against Heretics, in which he talks about celibacy, dates back probably to around 207 AD. That's probably less than 100 years after the Book of John was written. That's within a decade of the Muratorian Canon, the earliest known religious compilation that looks approximately like the New Testament. And it's well over 100 years before the actual New Testament was canonized. So the question of whether priests can bone is older than the Bible itself. What's really wild, though, is that even though we know Tertullian was talking about the mating habits of the apostles, we still don't know whether the contemporary Christian priests living all around him were getting it on. We do know that there were a lot of married bishops all the way up through at least 400 AD. But there's a riddle there, too. Were bishops allowed to marry, or were the married allowed to become bishops? There's pretty good reason to suspect that if a man were already married, and provided he had only married one woman and one time, then he could still become a priest. But then what? Maybe everything kept on as before. 
Or maybe both the new priest and his wife were now bound to celibacy. Maybe the marriage was dissolved. Maybe their children were made retroactive bastards. Or maybe any and all of those things might happen depending on who you were, where you were, and when you were. So how about the question of why? Whenever precisely priests became celibate, why'd they do it? This too is hazy. One of the earliest clear, complete, and unequivocal demands for clerical celibacy comes from the Second Council of Carthage, which took place around 400 AD. It decreed that priests, bishops, deacons, monks, and anyone else in service to the church should, quote, observe perfect continence. Why? Because that is what the apostles did. Of course, that's questionable. At the very least, Peter had been married and had children. Even Tertullian admitted that. And as for the other eleven, well, the jury was, is, and shall forever be out. A decade or two before the council, Pope Sircius noted that some priests were using the examples of the apostles to argue the opposite, that they could have wives, sex with their wives, and children from the sex they had with their wives. And even if it were true that the apostles were abstinent, simply doing as they supposedly did, it's not a very interesting reasoning. So, what else you got? The most obvious reason for priests to avoid sex, which you've probably already worked out, is that a lot of the early church and the not-so-early church and the contemporary church believed sex was sinful. Original sinful, even. That view waxed and waned in severity and prominence over the centuries, but has been with Christianity since when Tertullian was writing. St. Paul, the father of the church, gives us another set of reasoning for remaining abstinent and unmarried. In his first letter to the Corinthians, or as our soon-to-be ex-president would call it, 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, Paul believed that the second coming was right around the corner, so he had special reason to be down not just on marriage or intercourse or child-rearing, but on all earthly things, since they'd soon be ending. But even if humanity was going to keep on trucking for the foreseeable future, a possibility Christianity was starting to reckon with after a few centuries of messianic rain checks, Paul's point still made sense for clerics. They should be focused on the kingdom of God, not on matters of home and family. And since men priests not even slightly excluded, had a way of being tempted away from this right and devoted obligation to consider God first and only, by the first millennium, the church was doing all they could to warn its clergy away from, as the Code of Canon Law puts it, persons whose company can endanger their obligation to observe continence. In other words, beware of women. By the time of the early Gothic period, around 1150 AD, this warning was mainly carried out in religious art and literature. And it's worth saying that religious art and religious literature would have been redundant terms in the early Gothic. All art and literature were religious. That was the whole point of art and literature. Secular art didn't really exist for Europeans of the period. But it would soon. 
because of the church's efforts to warn priests against fucking. This, at least, is the very compelling argument of Professor Susan L. Smith in her 1978 doctoral thesis, To Women's Wiles I Fell, and then again in her 1995 book, The Power of Women. Smith traces the roots of secular art back to the allegorical warnings for celibacy. In the early Gothic, this genre or topos of work began to show up in religious writing and in frescoes, paintings, sculptures, and stained glass in the cathedrals of the period. The stories of these works are simple, consistent, and blunt. Boys, women will fuck you up. If you've ever spent time in a museum, you've seen examples. From the 12th century through the Renaissance, the power of women is one of the most dominant themes in European art. You have paintings of Eve tempting Adam, Delilah ambushing Samson, Jael killing Sisera, and on and on. But not all of these women-will-fuck-you-up stories are biblical. One of the most recreated themes is the story of the poet Virgil, falling in love with and doggedly pursuing a maiden who repeatedly rebuffs him. Finally, she pretends to acquiesce to his persistence and tells Virgil that she will leave a basket under her window that night. If he crawls into it, she will raise it up into her bedroom. That night, Virgil gets in the basket and the maiden pulls it up, halfway, and leaves it there. In the morning, the whole city discovers Virgil, stuck in a basket, suspended in the air, humiliated. Like I say, the moral ain't subtle. And yet, it's still up for interpretation, isn't it? Sure, you could see each and every one of these stories as being about the danger of passion to overwhelm even the strongest man, like Samson, or the wisest, like Solomon, or the firstest, like Adam. But you could also see them as about women being cunning or even evil, which is certainly a very real and dangerous interpretation which definitely held and holds a lot of sway in European culture. Or you could interpret them as not being about the guile of femininity or the gullibility of masculinity, but as being about the power of love to overwhelm all else. And there's another almost unavoidable interpretation, the feminist one. The warning of these works was meant to be, even the greatest and most powerful man can be taken down by woman. But in that framing, the woman is cast as an almost impossible underdog. I've never really cared about sports. I like baseball and hockey in theory, but I can count on one hand the number of games I've watched in the last five years. Sports just never clicked for me. But growing up as a boy in America in the late 20th century, I understood that this was a problem that there was an expectation I like these things. So I can remember trying to work myself up, trying to find a pathway into caring about games the way the men around me did. I particularly remember watching a basketball game in the late 80s that must have been a very important one. Everyone was quite invested, and I wanted to be too. And I found a way. Root for the underdog. I don't really recall who was playing, probably the Bulls and what, late 80s, big game, maybe the Lakers, let's say the Lakers, Bulls versus Lakers. My family and their friends were watching hoping for a Bulls victory. That didn't mean anything to me. Who I wanted to win was whoever wasn't. Lakers are winning? Go Bulls! Bulls take the lead? Go Lakers! It was an undeniably weird way to watch, but it got me excited about a game for the first time I can remember which makes perfect sense to me now as an adult who still doesn't pay much attention to sports, but definitely pays a lot of attention to narrative. 
we seem to be hardwired to root for the underdog. The absolute dreamboat of a neuroscientist, Robert Sapolsky, chalks this instinct up to fundamental risk analysis. Let's picture a singles tennis match. You go in as a viewer, not having any relationship with players, other than that you know one of them is heavily favored. So, who should you root for? If you go for the odds-on player and they win, it's not a very big dopamine boost because that's what you figured would probably happen. And if they lose, it'll hurt a lot because those same expectations will make it both more disappointing and more surprising. On the other hand, backing the probable loser is an ironic win-win. If they lose, oh well, what did you expect? But if they win, that's an upset. A big honking pulled from the fire pleasant surprise. And our brains love those. So, early Gothic church officials, you can commission all the stories and paintings and friezes about the dangers of women overbearing powerful, strong, and brilliant men you want. When we read them, or see them, we are almost instinctively bound to see them the other way around. And indeed, that's what seems to happen to the powerful women topos over time. The theme becomes a place to invert or subvert power structures, or to celebrate love, or to do something that medieval Europe didn't do almost anywhere else, root for women. And soon enough, women themselves started getting in on the game, composing their own works in the genre originally meant to subjugate them. The most dominant artist in the power of women topos became Artemisia Gentileschi, an Italian Baroque painter who worked mostly in the style of Caravaggio. Heather recently talked about Artemisia in her Art Infusions YouTube series, which you should go watch. I will leave a link for it. In summary, when Artemisia was young, she was raped by the landscaped painter Augustino Tassi. The fucked up morality and law of the time dictated that Augustino should marry his victim, and so they were engaged and Artemisia was trapped in a sexual relationship for the next nine months. Then he bailed on her, and so Artemisia's father, Orazio, another painter, pressed charges against Tazi. His rape trial went on for seven more months, during which, you'll be unsurprised to learn, Artemisia was as scrutinized as he was. In fact, on the stand, she was tortured with thumbscrews, the thinking being that if she kept up her testimony under tremendous pain, it would corroborate her claims. Tazi was found guilty not just of raping Artemisia, but of having committed adultery with his sister-in-law, of having attempted to steal Orazio's paintings, and of conspiring to have his wife murdered. But after two years in prison, the verdict was annulled and Tazi was free to go about his life. And if that pisses you off, you should see how Artemisia reacted. Artemisia created painting after painting of the power of women. She painted Salome with the head of St. John the Baptist. She painted Samson and Delilah. She painted Jael driving a nail through Sisera's head. She painted David and Bathsheba. She painted Judith conspiring to kill Holofernes with her maidservant. And then she painted Judith killing Holofernes with her maidservant. And then she painted Judith and her maidservant with the head of Holofernes twice. What's more, in many of these Power of Women paintings, Artemisia inserts herself as the avenging woman. It's pretty badass, and eliminates all doubt about whose side Artemisia was on. The important thing for art history, according to Smith, is that by the time Artemisia came along, most of these Power of Women pieces were biblically themed, but they weren't religiously themed. 
The stories were from the Bible, but they were no longer expressing biblical morals. They were about power, or love, or justice, or femininity, and not in their Christian meanings. So the power of women topos became the gateway for secular art. So far, I've ignored the most popular of the motifs, the one I came here to explain. Well, maybe it's the second most popular motif. Maybe the most popular was the Battle of the Trousers, paintings and woodcuts that showed a wife subduing her husband as they fought over who literally wore the pants in the household. Usually the husband is pictured on his knees in front of the pants, beneath his wife, who spanks him with a switch. But the other most popular motif is that of Phyllis. Her story seems to date back to around 1220, but whether it comes from France or Germany is tough to work out. It seems quite possible, if not likely, that the story was dreamt up separately and almost simultaneously in both places, which would be a wild and telling coincidence. Anyway, the story, in broad strokes, goes like this. A young royal is chastised by his teacher for ignoring his lessons and duties because he is distracted by the impossibly sexy Phyllis. So, the teacher bans him from seeing her. To get back at him, Phyllis seduces the teacher. Depending on the version, he either promises to reconnect her with the student or else to pay her for her time. Either way, what the teacher wants is Phyllis. They meet in the royal garden, where Phyllis convinces him to strip naked, get on his hands and knees, and allow her to ride him around with a bridle and crop. Again, the versions depart on what happens next. Maybe the queen stumbles in on them, or else the student does. Either way, the teacher is humiliated. In the German version, he flees the country and devotes himself to thinking about the wickedness of women. In the French, he explains to his student that it's not his fault, because love conquers all, and all shall conquer, as long as the world shall last. The student and teacher in Phyllis's story aren't from the Bible, but they might as well have been for how medieval Europe saw them. The student was the greatest non-Christian king and general in history, Alexander the Great. And so then the teacher, being ridden around naked through the garden, was the wisest, smartest, most self-possessed and inerrant man to ever live. Fucking Aristotle. Which is really all to say, we've got fucking Aristotle merch up on the store now. Talk to you next time. Hey, this is Mark in the present again, letting you know that we've also recently added Tesla Death Ray merch and by popular demand, Jeff the Talking Mongoose I'm a Freak merch by Scott Rocket, which is so damn splendid, you have to see it for yourself. So check out our merch store via the website constantpodcast.com or through the show notes now. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound, Lee Rosevere, Blue Dot Sessions, and Kevin McLeod. You know the pitch by now, but if you would like to help support this show and get access to more stories like you heard today, go to patreon.com slash the constant to sign up. We're a proud part of Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, home to Ministry of Ideas. On the latest episode, host Zachary Davis explores the complex nature of national borders and discovers they're not really fixed lines on a map we imagine them to be. Learn more at ministryofideas.org or find it wherever you listen to podcasts. From Chicago, Illinois, 
where we'll be back in one week with another brand spanking new episode. This has been The Constant. Thank you.